There's a question that's been debated for years and continues to be an issue even today. It has to do with the issue of Christ's death. Did he die only for those who are elect, or did he die for the whole world? Well, stay with us to see what the Bible really says about this issue and many others as well. listening to the question and answer program with our Bible teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, who for over 30 years answered the many questions of his listeners. This is a ministry of the Through the Bible Radio Network. Today, our first question comes to us from a listener in Inglis, Florida, who writes, I believe that when a person dies, their breath goes back to God who gave it. But what is it that is in the grave to rise? Is it the soul? What about the soul and the spirit? Well, It's made very clear, I think, in Scripture that it's the body that's put in the grave. And it is the body that is raised from the dead. That is the thing Paul is talking about when he mentions the resurrection. When he uses the word resurrection, it's anastasis, and it means to stand up. Now, the soul can't stand up. I do not know what position the soul would get in if it stood up. Resurrection only refers to the body. It's the body that dies. It's the body that goes in the grave. Now, if the person is saved, the person, that is his spirit, the personality, the individual, it's absent from the body present with the Lord. He's left the body, and it's the body that's buried. And that is what Paul meant when he says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them who are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Now, what is it that's put to sleep? It's the body of the believer that's put to sleep, not his spirit. The spirit goes immediately to be with Christ. Therefore, it is the body that is raised in resurrection not the spirit. The spirit never dies to begin with. It's the body that dies. That's the part that's put in the grave. That's the part that's to be raised. And that, I think, is something very important in these days to see. Our next question was sent in from Whittier, California. The listener writes, What's your opinion on the doctrine of limited atonement? This seems to be getting into churches and confusing people. Yes, very candidly, that is something that is spreading quite a bit. It's been promoted largely by young preachers who are actually very limited in their theological background and in their language study. I happen to know several of them, and these young men actually were in my classes. And they've gone off into this. 
and several of them have, and I, when I say several, I can name three, and that would be all. But these three men, very candidly, were very limited in their knowledge. They were not what you would call the brightest students in the class by any means. And they've gone off in this direction. Now there happens to be one or two outstanding men today. One man I know, a very brilliant man, has gone off in this direction, and he's made a tremendous impact on a great many folk. Now, most of these men, in fact, all of these men, have actually had limited experience as pastors of churches where they have ministered to people. And I've always felt that the practical side has been neglected when anyone goes off in this direction. Now, the doctrine of limited atonement is, of course, that Christ only died for the elect. And if you could just get to the elect, our job would be pretty easy. We'd forget about the rest of the world. And as Spurgeon put it, when somebody said to him, if I believe like you do, I wouldn't preach like you do. And Spurgeon said, well, if the Lord had put a yellow streak up and down the backs of the elect, I would go up and down the street lifting up shirt tails, finding out who had the yellow streak and give them the gospel. But God didn't give it to me that way. He told me to preach to every creature. Well, I think it's even stronger than that, friends. I personally believe that this doctrine is greatly misunderstood, largely because the word atonement, to speak of our redemption and our salvation, is not the best word to begin with, it's not a New Testament word at all, and yet in the past century and the beginning in the last century, it has become very popular to speak of our salvation as the atonement of Christ. Well, that's never used in the New Testament. The word occurs only one time in the New Testament, and it's in Romans 5.11, where it says, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Well, that word atonement actually is reconciliation. And the better word would be reconciliation there, but even that needs to be explained. Actually, the word means to change completely. Now, we have, therefore, over in 2 Corinthians, and I'm going to turn there and share this passage with you because I think this is very important to understand today. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19 and then 20, maybe I should move back to verse 18. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, that ministry of reconciliation, that word means to be changed completely. Verse 19, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not just the elect, but the entire world unto himself, 
not imputing their trespasses unto them, and he hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Now what he's saying here, God today is reconciled to the world. Back in the Old Testament, the word atonement was used, and it was used to cover sin. They make an atonement, it would cover sin. It was not removed, it was just covered over. And when Christ came, he made a complete redemption. He paid for all those sins that were past. And today, God's attitude toward the world has been changed completely. God is reconciled to the world today. And actually, you are not lost, my friend, because you're a sinner. There's a remedy for your sin. You are lost because you won't turn to Christ. And that's the position of the lost world today. There are those that are hearing the gospel on this program, and you're resisting it. You're turning your back on Christ. But God is reconciled to you. You say, oh, I'm a bad sinner. Well, he's reconciled to you. He'll save you. Christ paid the penalty for your sin. God's been changed, and he wants you to be reconciled. You don't have to do anything to reconcile God. He is reconciled, and the whole world is reconciled unto God. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the mercy seat for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, I don't know who the elect are. He told me that he's reconciled to the whole world, and he says, McGee, get on the radio and tell them all about it, and everyone that will be reconciled to me, I'll save. And that's all I know. And this idea of assuming today that you have got a little inside wire and that there are just a few of the elect that are going to be saved, I think you're entirely wrong. And by the way, it makes it pretty easy then not to go into missionary work. Those people never support this radio program because they don't see any purpose in us broadcasting into China today or in Russia. What good does it do? He's only going to save the elect. Well, he told me to preach the gospel to every creature because I don't know who the elect are. I guess he does. That's his business. That's his department. It's not my department. He says he's reconciled to the world. And listen, if there are people in hell that can look up to God and say to him, I'm here, Lord, because you didn't elect me, may I say that they'd have a pretty good case against God. But there'll never be a person in hell that's going to be able to say, I wasn't one of the elect. He will only be able to say, Christ died for me and I turned my back on his redemption. That's the reason men are lost today, my friend. He died for the sins of the whole world. And today, I hope you believe that, and I hope that you want to get the Word of God out. We love this radio because the Word goes out to the strangest places, goes around the world. And then here comes a letter from here and there and all over Somebody says, I heard the word 
and I've accepted Christ as Savior. And now I can say, well, they're the elect, but I didn't know that before. I just give the word out. Oh, my friend today, it's a thrilling business to get the word of God out to the world and forget all this business about, well, I believe in the limited atonement. Well, that will limit you to a rocking chair where you can sit down and let the rest of the world not only go by, but go to hell. And that's a very terrible attitude to take, my beloved. Now, somebody says you've made it very strong. I certainly have, because somebody today needs to wake up and alert a great many Christians today who are going to sleep on this pillar of the limited atonement. Moving on, we come to a question from Ironwood, Michigan. I'm at a point in my life that I don't know how to believe anymore. I thought that I had received Jesus as my Savior many years ago. Since then, I have struggled with returning to the things of the world. I want to stop playing church and know that Jesus is my Savior. Can you help me with this? I take it that this individual, from the type of letter that he has written, that he's been pretty much buffeted by life and that he is apparently not an individual that has very definite convictions about anything. And a person like that is apt to be wish-washy about many things, even about his salvation. But I would like to say this for his benefit today and also knowing that there are others out there, the same kind of individuals. And it is simply this. The devil knows most of us pretty well. He knows our weakness, that is for sure. He knows where to hammer at us. That is most effective. And he certainly is hammering at you at the place that's most effective. I had the same problem at the beginning. I could go back to a time when I accepted Christ as my Savior. But actually, for the first two or three years, I just floundered without knowing anything at all. And at that time, had no real teaching of the Word of God and didn't seem to have any desire for it and didn't even know what I was hungry for until I came under the teaching of a very wonderful Bible teacher. And that minute that happened, all things began to smooth out for me. But this Bible teacher said something to me that was actually the turning point of when I came to the place of having the assurance of my salvation. And it was a very simple thing. I know what this poor fellow is doing. He's sitting there. He looks at his life. And believe me, if you look at your life, you can't have much assurance there. But then you look at, well, did I really make a decision for Christ? Did I really trust him as my Savior? And this teacher said this. He said, I went through that period also. And he says, I came to this conclusion. When I had those doubts would enter my mind, and he says, I felt like it was satanic, I would say, all right. Mr. Devil, I want you to be witness 
If I have never accepted Christ as my Savior, I'm going to accept him right now and trust him as my Savior. Now, what do you think of that? Well, may I say to you, the minute that that man said that to me, it just solved a whole lot of problems. And you know what I did? In the next two minutes, I told the devil, I said, now look, you sure been bothering me. You got me even to the place where I doubt my salvation. Maybe I didn't accept Christ back there when I said I did. Maybe you're right. But I want you to know right now I accept Christ as my Savior. And you know that, friends, that settled everything. Because even to this good day, every now and then, I make that statement. I confess him again. Somebody says, well, don't you know you have in the past? Sure. But I just want him to know that I still trust the Lord Jesus as my Savior. Now, my daughter, when she made her confession of faith, one day she was at her grandmother's, and that was in Texas, and she came into the kitchen where my wife was and said to her that I won't accept Jesus as my Savior. My wife took her into the bedroom, and she got down on her knees and accepted Christ as her Savior. Very remarkable thing to do, by the way, because we did not push her. This business of pushing children is wrong, I think. And so after that, periodically, as my daughter grew up, I would ask her, I'd say, do you really trust Christ as your Savior? And one day she said to me, she says, why is it? Dad, you just keep asking me from time to time. Do you really doubt me? I said, no. I just want to make sure that you are sure that you've trusted Christ as your Savior. So, friends, I say to you today, whoever you are, wherever you are, a person maybe that you do not have strong convictions about anything. You're sort of a weakling. That's what a lot of us are. But right now, you can say, I trust Christ as my Savior. And Mr. Devil wants you to know that. You say, well, now maybe tomorrow, next week, or next year, I may have my doubts again. All right? Then go through this again. Stick with it, friend. Can't lose, you see. And that's always proven very helpful to me. I hope it'll be helpful to this individual. And that, by the way, is the purpose of this question and answer program. We come now to a question from a listener in Orlando, Florida. He says, Could you please explain the highway from Egypt to Assyria as mentioned in Isaiah 19, verse 23? Well, here again is a verse of Scripture that is lifted out by actually some of the cults and some of the more sensational prophetic teachers today, and they attempt to make some great something out of it. May I say that it's part of a great prophecy that Isaiah is giving here, and let me read Isaiah 19:23. It says, "In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptian shall serve with the Assyrians." Now, the very interesting thing is that there are those that are attempting to make certain application of this for the present day. And, of course, 
it's very clear that at the very beginning, Isaiah places this at the time, a place, and prophecy where it belongs in that day. Now, what is that day? Well, if you went with us through Isaiah and some of the other prophetic books, you discovered that the prophets always spoke of that day, which is the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, as the prophet Joel tells us, is the day of darkness, not light. In other words, God's day begins with sundown, and then it moves into sunrise. And that day that's coming is the time of the great tribulation period. And then the millennium will be established here upon the earth. So we can place that way down yonder in the future, and you couldn't apply that to today at all. But the interesting thing is that today there is no highway between Egypt and Assyria, or Syria today. Why? Because the highway went through the nation Israel. And right now the highway is closed. Today I think it's almost absurd. When we were in Cairo, Egypt, and we wanted to go to Israel, we had to fly into Amman, Jordan. We had to spend a couple days there, which we were glad to do. But then we had to take a bus and then go across the Jordan River and go through customs there and have our suitcases searched. Why couldn't you fly from Cairo right into Tel Aviv? Well, there are no planes that fly there. And so another time, we had to go to the island of Cyprus, and then an Israeli plane picked us up there and took us in to that land. So that today, there's no highway through there, but in the time of the millennium, I think we're going to get rid of passports, and I think that there will be that free exchange from one people to another. It's just like today driving in this country from one state to another. You can't tell when you drive out of one state into another, except sometimes the highway is not as good, or sometimes it's even better than the state you've just left. But that's the only way you can tell the difference that you've come from one to the other. In that day, there will be a highway open. And that's all that Isaiah is saying. You can't make some big deal out of this as some prophetic teachers do that go for sensationalism because there's a great deal today of dealing with sensationalism. And believe me, I think prophecy, just taken as it is, is sensational enough without attempting to make something of it more than is written. Our final question comes to us from a listener in Memphis, Tennessee, who says, Why in certain scriptures, such as Isaiah 4, verse 2, does the verb shall precede the subject? Surely it's not to make the statement any less definite. No, very candidly, it's put in there to make it more definite, to tell the truth. And I'll read Isaiah 4, 2. And again, here you have a picture, a prophetic picture of the kingdom that's to be established here on the earth. And it says, In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. You see, actually, the Hebrew has no future tense. 
and in most of the prophetic passages. And it is put in there. Why? Because when God says it, it's just the same as done. It's just that sure. But it's put in here to let you know that it is future, and I think it makes it more definite than less definite. This is for the future, and it is a prophecy of the future. Earlier in the program, Dr. McGee spoke about the issue of the assurance of salvation. If you'd like to know more about that, Dr. McGee has a booklet on the issue called How to Have the Assurance of Your Salvation, and it's available as a free download online at our website, ttb.org. Now, in a moment, I'll give you the information that you'll need if you prefer to purchase a printed copy. But first, let me say that we offer a number of items that can assist you in your understanding of the Word of God. So if you'd like to know more about our various resources, you can access our online bookstore or contact one of our service operators. I'll provide you with ordering information again in just a minute. Now, be sure to join us on the Through the Bible radio program heard weekdays on this station. Dr. McGee's five-year journey will continue this week as we follow his study through the whole Word of God. If you'd like to be on our mailing list for our monthly newsletter and the notes and outlines, call or write and let us know, and we'll get you started right away. To place an order, ask for more information about any of our resources or to request to be added to our mailing list, call 1-800-65-BIBLE, Monday through Thursday from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific Time, or write to Questions and Answers in the U.S. Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109, in Canada Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1, or find us online at ttb.org. Now we leave you with this prayer that God will answer all your questions and solve all your problems. Jesus made it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. This program has been brought to you by the faithful friends and supporters of the worldwide ministry of Through the Bible Radio Network.